You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we are going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Matt. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Mark. What? I know! Why did Lee say it like that? I don't know, it came out like that. That was an accident, sorry. (laughs) Hang on, here I am, I'm sorry. Right, I'm going to try and get through this in 60 minutes. (laughs) With five of us here, that's not going to be easy. I have also, because we've not done this for three weeks, got six films to review... So these are going to be one-line reviews oh, yeah. at the end of the podcast. Has anybody seen Blade Runner? Yes. I'm seeing it on Sunday. I'm, I'm seeing see it on it Sunday. Week, Sorry. Okay, spoiler-free. Yeah, we can do a spoiler-free one. Yeah. In a sentence, quick. Very Come good. on, time is money. <laughs> a worthy successor to the original. Okay. I can't, do. Yeah, exactly the same. Sorry. Fair enough. Good music. Uh, <clears throat> David Kitchen. Writes, G'day. Bonza. writes from Down Under to say, Dear Blue Box team, I very much enjoyed your top 12 Monsters and top 11 New Who Regulars podcasts. <laughs> Interestingly, while I thought the Monsters rankings were fairly intuitive, I thought the Regulars rankings was anything but. I did note that I still seem to be the only one that loves Martha. While Matt and I seem to remain in a minority on Donna. And I thought Matt articulated perfectly my reasons why as well. Good. Uh, You've got a fan. (laughs) Matt always articulates things well. It's that cyber technology. I am fully articulated. (laughs) As I say, it's that cyber technology. (laughs) I agree with JR. What? What? That some of the rankings reflect more how controversial a companion is rather than how loved... Clara, and to a lesser extent Amy, is a very well-rounded and well-written companion. However, part of being a well-rounded character is that some people will find her unlikable. I know I did, not someone I'd want to work with or travel with, whereas Rory and Bill are simpler and more traditional characters and therefore inoffensive. I hope you do votes and episodes on the on the on the top ten classic seasons. That'll be next. And ranking the 10 new Who seasons. And that'll be now. I think it would be fascinating to see how people vote. Finally, I know on your podcast you're happy to occasionally mention current affairs. What, us? No. When was he writing this? About three weeks ago. (laughs) Because it's been a while since... Current-ish, then. Okay. And you have... The relief of Mafeking. (laughs) And you have a number of listeners in Australia. Can I therefore ask you to please join with the Australian Doctor Who podcasts and encourage listeners to vote yes in the same-sex marriage vote and post their ballot back before November the 7th? Mm. Thanks. Bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? Thanks, and all the best. David, from the professional Doctor Who show. Which is a little inside joke because I call them professional on Twitter on podcast day, international podcast day. 
Um, Same-sex marriage vote in Australia. By the time this podcast goes out, there'll still be about a week. If anybody in Australia who is able to vote and hasn't voted yet, just tick yes and stick your ballot back in the post because... I don't think there's any question. Don't don't assume your vote means nothing. Because <coughs> if yes. everyone thought that, it mm. wouldn't mean mm. anything. Yeah, just just take a look at Brexit. So make sure you vote right. <laughs> no, but seriously, I might be in the minority now. <laughs> no, but seriously, same-sex marriage. I, I think it's ridiculous that modern society would even contemplate not having same-sex marriage. So if anybody's thinking twice about it or hasn't bothered to vote yet. You should definitely do it. Mm-hmm. And how about your fellow citizens? Yeah, there's uh, there's nothing really more to say about it. Is if well, okay, let's move on. Con- conventional marriage didn't really work for me, but you know, <sighs> well, yeah, but marriages might be better. <laughs> Matt... He's already taken, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I know that look, huh? mm-hmm. Matt, that look. <laughs> but marriage is. It's just a piece of paper. Yeah. But the concept of two people who are in love and want to make a commitment to each other should be gender blind. So there's no reason why the piece of paper shouldn't be gender blind as well. Mm. And any society that outlaws gender blind marriage is living in the past, is living under some sort of... uh, it's, It's living under the rule of the narrow-minded, really. Living under the rule of people who can't see far enough to see that in the bigger scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. And so as it doesn't really matter, there's no real reason to outlaw one and allow the other. Mm. They should all be the same and equal. Mm. It's not about in the eyes of God, it's about in the eyes of your fellow man. It's discrimination. Or woman. Well, I use man as a generic expression in the same way that you might say human. I thought you were going into a Life of Brian sketch then. (laughs) (laughs) Or woman. Right. I tell you what. Six film reviews, all DVDs, Blu-rays that have recently come out. I cracked through them. Uh, The Mirror Cracked. Speaking of cracking through things... Mm is a Blu-ray issue with a new improved print of the 1980-ish Guy Hamilton version with Rock Hudson and various other people in it, Elizabeth Taylor. Angela Lansbury. It's a bit like Carry On Christie, to be honest. <laughs> but in a good way. I mean, it's it's an intelligent, but it's a funny version of the story. It plays a little bit hard and loose with the source material, and it uh, does so by poking fun out of the sort of Hollywood trappings, because mm. it's about a Hollywood film crew that comes to a small village in England. Uh, but it does the Christie stuff really well as well, and uh, it's a terrific film, great fun. Not an absolute classic, but certainly one of those films that you could stick on any day that we can really enjoy. Um, Out of the Shadows is an Australian horror film that wants to be The Exorcist or The Conjuring, but can't work out if it's a story about ghosts or demons, and can't work out if it's a story about exorcism or serial killers, and in the end fails remotely to be scary by not setting up any tension. 
Every time there's a mystery to be solved, it's solved in the very next scene without any investigation whatsoever. And it's just filled with characters telling each other what's going on. And every time there's a scary bit where there should be a jump scare, the jump scare starts in the first three seconds of the scene. So you're left not jumping at anything. It's like... There's no setup to build up the tension. No, there is no tension in it whatsoever. It's like if there's going to be a ghost in the scene, the ghost is there from the start of the scene. So it's like the horror version of The Lighthouse Family. Ooh. Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> so actually, if you reverse that, if you watch the film in reverse... I like Ocean Drive, by the way. I think that's a great film. <laughs> oh, oh, dear. That explains a lot. <laughs> no one's talking to Joe anymore. Good, I'll be able to do this podcast on my own and get home by 11 o'clock. <clears throat> yeah, just reverse the film. You get all the jump scares in one place. Yeah, you would. Uh, Monster Island is a children's cartoon. It's really cheap. It's about a kid who doesn't realise he's a vampire, finds out he's a vampire, comes from a family of monsters, has never met his mother because um, his mother and father, well, she disappeared when he was a child before they went to live in New York or wherever. So he goes off to look for his mother or his grandmother to find out what happened to his mother at a place called Monster Island. It's about as cliched as you can possibly get. So follow up to Twilight. <laughs> but yeah, but my uh, three-year-old test audience thoroughly enjoyed it. So what can you say? Mm. You know, mm. if you've seen Hotel Transylvania just one too many times, get a copy of this and at least give yourself a little bit of variety. I tell you what, I watched Hotel Transylvania two the other day for the first time. That is gag heavy, isn't it? That is. So I've not seen well the written. second one. I've only seen the first. Oh, well, I thoroughly recommend it. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is like a really <laughs> cheap, low-rent version of that. Right, should we do some Doctor Who? Mm, I'll do the you. other three at the end. We are doing the top ten new series seasons, uh, and in reverse order of how our listeners voted. Oh, no. Matt, I've just realised I didn't do the percentages. Oh, I've only swore then. <laughs> well, how, do we, how do we know how it's going? How do we know the weight of each decision? We, we don't. Know, we know the order, uh, but, but what about the girth? We that's don't. That's <laughs> We've already done politics. Do you want me to quickly pop home, pause the recording, yeah. pop home, and get there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was quick. <clears throat> make up, make up some numbers. Yeah. We could do what you normally do and just make up. Just do a Donald Trump and just come out with anything. What? I work really. out these percentages using a little internet calculator. Oh, using a little internet calculator. It's <laughs> yeah, a lot of hard work, man. Who says that? <laughs> I just did. Uh, I did say it for comedy value. Oh, okay. okay. Moving on. <clears throat> okay, of the ten new series seasons, the one that came in bottom place was series seven. Okay, what's in series seven again? <sighs> well, it's everything from... It's, it's the mini-movies that finish okay. off Amy and Rory, Boring. and then it's the Impossible Girl sequence with um, Clara. Okay. okay. It's... It's the period of Doctor Who where Stephen Moffat was under a lot of personal pressure, so wasn't able to stay on top of things as much as he perhaps wanted to, and also had the pressure of the 50th anniversary, so maybe didn't. But having said that, there's some little gems in there, isn't there? Dinosaurs on a Spaceship and Power of Three in the first half. And then the second half, you've got things like the Crimson Horror and Hyde. And the name of the Doctor, which I thought was a great story mm. for the anniversary year. I don't think it was a classic, but I thought it did what it did really well. Um, mm. It was there to set up the 
the big 50th anniversary story, wasn't it? So, well, not really. It worked well. It there was a setup for the anniversary story in the last few seconds, mm. but other than that, it worked as a self-contained story, and I thought it did a really good job of it. I think it worked as a self-contained, but it was also maybe not intended, but clearly part of the trilogy. And well, taken there were as a, taken as a threesome. That it was, was a really good. thematic, but not yeah, plot-driven just trilogy. Me in the corner of my eye, because I said the word threesome. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't the corner of the eye. You were looking at me when you said that word. Thematically, it was a trilogy, but yes. in terms of the plot, yeah. it was entirely yeah. um, entirely stood alone from the other mm-hmm. two episodes. And I think that slightly undervalues series seven, but I can sort of see why. Because it's probably, of all the ten series, it's probably the loosest one, the one that's least consistent. Do you know, I I think this is a really hard list. I'm not sure if I voted on this, actually. I think I gave it a look and went, well, I'll think about that. And then thought about it. That's always dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it really hurts when I think. Yeah, you're Um, right. You didn't vote. Your name's not on the list. Why why are you here? I found it really hard to vote you would have made those percentages. Because they're all good in their own way and they're all bad in other ways. You know, I think they're all quite equal and they all merit being at the top because they're just great since Well, well they certainly all merit being in this list of top ten. <laughs> this yeah. series. series, series I'm rather annoyed season seven. I did. The well, series, yeah. series seven almost feels like the closest to the original series because it's created through adversity and because it's kind of not really connected together. They're just yeah. sort, of, sort of individual stories. Like a bag but, of marbles. Yeah. There's a... The, 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 only, <laughs> the only really sort of arc bit that's in it is the introduction of Clara mm. and the episode where you find out what's going on with Clara. But in between that, you've got six episodes <coughs> where it's literally so, just the Clara and Doctor the, turning up for yeah, an adventure. The gap between the two halves as well isn't yeah. uh, give it much. But here, here's the merit, thing, right? Season six was complained about so much by so many people, it was, um, as being a big arc and not very easy to follow. So, I mean, I don't know whether this was Moffat's response, but it was like, you know, you're suddenly getting individual episodes here. Mm. Really easy to eat episodes. These are very, very, you know, a lot of fun. And it's come bottom. And it's come bottom. So, what the, you know. It's Popcorn Doctor Who, isn't it? They they try to make it into mini movies and, yeah. And also the way, I love the way it was marketed as well. It's got no dietary value, but it's enjoyable. (laughs) Speaking of which... The Capaldi posters, there's a calendar from Who Dares Publishing. It's only a tenner, plus posting and packing, I suppose. Mm. And I think there's only a handful of copies left. So if you want to get a 2018 calendar with, what's it called, Stuart... I can't remember his uh, name. Yeah. The no. artist who did the mm-hmm. posters, starting with Series 7, and has done all the Capaldi. Ooh, really? Twelve of the Capaldi ones are in a calendar. Mm. So get a Who Dares Publishing, because that looks lovely. And if I had a spare tenner in my pocket, I'd have bought that without question. Hint, hint. (laughs) Um, So you're assuming then that after all those complaints about Series 6, Series 6 is next up on the list, isn't it, Mark? I guess probably not. So, Mark, what is next up on the list? Series 2. Hmm. Does it remind me what's on Series 2? No, I actually know that one. (laughs) Actually, no, no, remind me. It's... Series it's two. It's the one with New Earth to yeah. it's Tenants New first. New Earth one. to Doomsday. Yeah. 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 Tenants first one and Piper's second. Mm. Smug Doctor and Rose. Yeah. Supposedly. Yeah. yeah. Well, they that's are. Not my words. But they, they are. are. But that's they to are. set up the, the end, isn't it? Mm. 
But having said that, it's only really apparent that that's what's going on in about maybe three or four of the episodes. Mm. Mm. And most of them kind of don't really address that too much. I'm quite surprised this one's as low as it is. Mm. I quite like series two. I think series Mm. two's not got a lot of consistency, but I think what it does is series one was mostly based around Earth and space stations and the past, but mostly based around Earth. I think series, because with series one, Russell T. Davis wanted to try and play it a bit safe to reintroduce Doctor Who before he started doing Doctor Who as Doctor Who. And I think this is Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who finding its feet. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit experimental and it still doesn't try to bite off more than it can chew. So the only alien planet you get, you don't really get much of one and all this kind of thing. But I do it's that, it's think it's from, fun. I think it's more popcorn than, mm. than season seven. There's a lot of kind of um, trying to impress the audience and actually just your general audience saying, look what Doctor Who can do now. We've got monks that fly in the air and do slow-mo and you know karate and all that sort of stuff and werewolves and, and we've got Queen Victoria and we've got that's, this and we've got that. It's all in one episode. Oh, hang on, that's just one episode. Yeah. But that's what I mean. It's kind of crammed full of all, the, all these fantastic shopping there are some ideas. great stories in there. Yeah. I really like in, in Impossible Planet and Satan Pit. Yeah, it does pick up. Towards, up as a favourite. It does pick up towards the end. Mm. I think. I think so. It's the well, difficult second now, yeah. isn't it? It's but the... even at the start, you've got things like Tooth and Claw and Girl in the Fireplace, which oh yeah, yeah, maybe oh, don't rank amongst the absolute classics. But I think Girl in the Fireplace, one of my favourite episodes of the whole, mm. yeah, ten years, yeah. twelve years. I mean, almost you have to take the Moffat episodes on their own. Oh, yeah. Because they're always sort of completely slightly distinct, at a different yeah. level. If this was a Pet Shop Boys album, Simon, which one would it be? <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be, actually. Yeah. But, but, but that, that had tracks on it which were really. <laughs> Matt's re- looking confused. Refined. He hasn't realised that I mean, actually which... is the name of the album. Oh, really? <laughs> what's it? So, so, so it's the one with the bloke yawning on the front. Yeah, but what's it called? Actually. 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 Oh, okay. It would be actually. Oh, well, they had a, a running gag that's, way. That's a bit like when I went to see the film It. And did you see it? <laughs> yes, I saw it. No, and Blade Runner. No, no, I saw it. Yes. Yeah. What, yeah. Yeah, the first Sorry. album was called Please. It was to make sure people went yeah. in the record shop and say, Can I have Pet Shop Boys, boys please? please. Yeah. Oh. Mm. They're wags. <laughs> so, so when they wanted the second album, they'd go in and say, Can I have the Pet Shop Boys, actually, please? Yes. Do you want that with two Please, albums. actually, or actually, please? Yeah, yeah. Mm, there we are. Okay, we've kind of moved off topic a bit there. Yeah, no, but what I was going to say was that there's sometimes second albums are those mixture of things where they they say right, let's try and do this now a bit more. They try and, and consolidate a bit and experiment a bit. Exactly. And the end of this this series, from memory, was the point where it, Doctor Who really took hold. Yeah. So the first the first series was popular, but mm. the end when Rose left, that was when. People suddenly discovered that Doctor Who can have a heart and well, can actually well, move people. Well, I think that happened in parting of the ways, but I think <clears throat> Doomsday really consolidated that. Yeah, and yeah, the ante a lot. Mm, really made it part of the public consciousness. The episode where Rose leaves was one mm. of those. That's what made Doctor Who water cooler. Mm. I think it was happening, but I think Doomsday is what really took it over. Yeah, it was great TV. Mm. It's a shame they undone it all a bit later down the line by bringing it back again. But anyway, right. We'll cross we'll up the to Philip Pullman wouldn't have done that. Exactly. Uh, I don't think they undid it at all by bringing her back. The no. the entire Russell T. Davis era was a story of Rose. 
Of course she was going to be there at the end. Shall we find out what came eighth? Twice. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, they all were. Yeah, but uh, to be fair, in the end of time, the scene with Rose mm. was before she meets the Eccleston Doctor, and I think that was the perfect way to do it. Mm. Mm. Okay, then. In eighth place, Lee mm. is... Season six? I can't see it from there. Well, that is why I am gesturing for you to lean over and look. <laughs> right, hang on. Just past the giant mobile phone at series three. Fair enough. That should be near the bottom. So what's in series three again? That's a Martha. That's a Martha. Okay. I didn't like that one. It's got Blink and oh, Human like... Nature. Oh, no, no. Utopia, I did like it. Gridlock. I get confused between Martha and Donna. Martha's the one I liked. Donna's the one I didn't. Simon's getting riled now. No, the stories are fine. The stories are good through this. I I don't like sharing her anyway, so it's fine. Simon did not play series four in his top five choices. Wow. I'm surprised series three came that low down because it's got Blink, it's got Human Nature, it's got Utopia. What I think happens is that people don't necessarily vote for the stories that are in a season but vote for the companion and the relationship with the doctor and the arc and this is why you shouldn't give people the vote (laughs) (laughs) you should just have one one person deciding on these things but that's the case that's that's exactly that's proven the point as to why i didn't put series four in my top five because it didn't feel as a series it did we get a reason why series seven's at the bottom because I'm starting to feel like I, I don't, I'm not You're quite really upset about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit confused yeah. about it. When who voted for series seven? I would have done. Um, yeah, did anybody mean? vote for series seven? Well, it got a it got eleven votes, so oh, it did okay. get votes, okay. but it was way adrift at the bottom. Yeah, okay. Um, that's why it's at the bottom. <laughs> they got why. fewer votes. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, what series two and series seven were the only two series that nobody picked as a first choice out of everybody you voted. Oh. And Series 3, even though it's third from the bottom, got um, three first-place votes, including one from Matt Barber. Yeah, because it's a really good series. It's got Utopia in it, and it's got Blink, and it's got Human Nature and Family of Blood, which are, you know... I remember watching those episodes thinking, wow, this is... this is." Each week I was thinking, it's still good. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm really looking forward to next week. Well, and in the past, there's a recommendation. The past, I was watching like series two. I was watching an episode, and then I was sort of watching an episode, thinking that was quite good. And then, oh, that's really good, and that was quite good. But this one, I was actually, it was felt like it was building up to something. I think it was because they gave that that trailer after forty two, the story forty two. Mm. They had a trailer for because they had a three week break for the Eurovision well, song contest or something. I think it was longer than that. Well, it was, it was a fortnight between episodes, yeah. but it was only a week off. So they had a sort of mini, mid-series trailer. Mm. And that mid-series trailer, you know, that was incredibly exciting. It had John Sin in it, and it had... Mm. Really cool. Not true. Return of the Master. Yeah, and the fact I remember all of this... Yes, probably but why it came first in my... Um, at the end of that series, you had the Doctor getting shrunk to the size of that character from Lord of the Rings, or Gollum. Dobby, wasn't it? The the Dobby. Dobby. Harry Potter. The Dobby from Harry Potter. Oh, Gollum from... Uh, Dobby Doctor. Yeah. They're both the same thing, aren't they? Are they? No. Oh, all right. <laughs> they're both house elves, aren't they? No. Gollum, aren't they? Oh, dear. Okay, whatever. <laughs> First he gets shrunk, and then he resurrects like Jesus, and then he yeah, starts flying, and then he starts sobbing nice. all over John Sim's chest. And I think that's what people remember Series 3 for. That and Martha lying on the bed 
thinking to herself, I love you, Doctor, while David Tennant's tossing himself off over Rose. I think I'll probably remember, remember that scene. Uh, but I'll probably remember series three for the Weeping Angels and Kerry Mulligan. And I'm Mark Gatiss. No, but I don't think they do for yeah. the reason you just said. But they won't remember <laughs> not the Mark. Stephen Moffat story, Stand Apart. No. They don't remember series three for Blink. They remember series three and they remember Blink. Mm. But they don't. I don't think people necessarily put the two together mm. in well, that way such that they don't Jacoby. Or the scarecrows. Mm-hmm. And still, you're talking hearts. about just three stories out of the whole series. Yeah, Lazar, Four episodes. Lazarus Experiment, was that one of your favourites? I didn't mind actually, the Lazarus Experiment. Because actually, human nature kind of sits there much like a Moffat story. It does stand apart from the rest of it. Yeah. So I'm saying that's not necessarily... So I think there are five strong episodes in a row. In yeah. Series. And the last one is sort of... Well, good. we've the, got... The sound of drums is as good... It's a good, like, you know, conspiracy theory. Conspiracy thriller. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame that the second part doesn't really... Yeah, the second part doesn't work entirely. But But the first first half of the second part, you know, there are bits of it that are really good. You know, the wasteland of the world, Martha's Mm -hmm. journey, Toclophane, terrifying, horrible things flying around, taking people apart. You know, the the resistance fights, all that's really good. I think it's literally just the Dobby Doctor and the crying over Johnson sort of spoils Mm -hmm. it a bit. But um, yeah, even Captain Jack being killed over and over again is quite fun to watch. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and his line about being in the face of Poe is terrific. <laughs> um, I liked series three. I think it was misjudged in certain ways. I think the unrequited love storyline was misjudged. Yeah. And I think he made the same. I think of it as a an error that Stephen Moffat does with Bill in that he spends more time introducing her. Than he does telling stories about her. Martha is being introduced right up as far as episode seven, and that's more than halfway through the series. And in the second half, there's an episode where she doesn't even feature. So it's like she gets introduced, she's gone. Yeah. And the same thing and that's really elongated is... in series four as well. In some respects. Uh, yeah. The same but... Kind of ineffectual. Well, in series four, they do it ask about face. They introduce her. And then they tell stories in which she's a strong presence. And then they go back to introducing her. But we'll talk about that. Mm. Um, Right, Simon. The story that came in seventh, the series that came in seventh is... Series six. Given all the complaints, why is this not leather? And this is quite a jump up from series three. Those bottom three are way out at the bottom. Maybe because our listeners weren't the ones complaining. So series six is... The ones, the what, the last Amy and Rory one. Oh my it's God, Matt, do you actually series. watch do. Doctor Who? Yes, but I don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't pay attention to the numbers of the series. Yes, series six is the River Song storyline with the silence. Okay, and yeah, I did wonder when I was putting these votes together: is because we're quite a pro Moffat podcast? Does that mean we've got a, quite a pro Moffat listenership? But then when people write in with comments and things like that, you get quite a lot of anti-Moffat sentiment as well. And of course, most of our listeners are probably classic series fans anyway. So it's all much of a muchness. So I don't know. In the end, I'm not sure if there is sort of a pro-Moffat slant among our listenership. As much as perhaps a bigger cross-section so the anti-Moffat voices aren't the loudest. 
It's interesting that um, there's a friend of ours on the internet that's going through the series. Yeah. And um, just I was bored the other day and decided to stick some old Doctor Who on. And I whacked on the wedding of River Song for some bizarre reason. You whacked on the wedding of River Song? Yeah, I thought I'll give Go it on, a Matt, back, Mark, back Mark say it, say it, say it, Mark, say it. <laughs> Is that a euphemism? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> No, no, uh, it isn't. No, it's not. <laughs> anyway, I put it on. And I thought, do I, can, will I? You, will you I put get, it on? Is that a euphemism? <laughs> will, wow. I, will I get this? Will I is get it? There's a tiny <laughs> hole in the middle. I mean, that is. Were but, you? Were you? Were, were you building yourself up to ranking it? Oi. Oh, that's not. A well, that's half our listeners gone. Sorry. <laughs> the blue box podcast. Um, I think they all went when Jail made his. Yeah. Anyway, Lee, you're in the middle of making a really insulted Australia. Maybe I was. There was. I'm not the one who insulted Australia. G'day. I've just been friendly. Uh, (laughs) Is that a euphemism? There were so many ideas again thrown into this one episode. I mean, it was absolutely crazy, ridiculous, over the top nonsense. It was children's nonsense. But it worked really, really well. And I'm ashamed to say that I think I really was down on that episode when it first came out. But after watching it, almost 10 years later, whatever it is, and actually giving it some time, it's not as complicated as everybody thought it was. I mean, it just isn't. Everything's there on the page. But it's it's beautiful and funny and fun and stupid and ridiculous. I actually and think, very Doctor Who. I think the problem with Series 6, if anything, is that it's a lot simpler than people were expecting it to be and they found the fact that it wasn't more clever a disappointment. It was just things that were like... You know, the silence, um, the silence will fall, uh, the 11th and all that sort of stuff at Trends Law. You know, how does Dorian know this? How does somebody know that? Why are their children singing a nursery around about TikTok goes to clock for the doctor? Where the hell is that coming from? It's all these little things, these extraneous uh, extra atmospheric things to make you feel like, oh, something mysterious is going on here. You don't really need those so much. And it just but they add to the fun. Yeah, but it just annoys people because you're waiting for nearly two series to hear what mm. that means. And then you're kind of like, yeah. oh, I don't, I don't really care that much I just want to watch the adventure happen instead I think so you've got the answer probably annoy people I think you've got the answer to Silence Will Fall right at the start of Series 6 well who blew up the TARDIS Rivers, oh, yeah. yeah River Song is being programmed as an assassin for the Doctor by the Silence there's a silent in the TARDIS saying Silence Will Fall and River Song's in the exploding TARDIS I and you've even got the spaceship from um, the Lodger, yeah. which was immediately yeah. before the TARDIS blows up. It is all there, but it's yeah. all there over about 26 hours worth of viewing. So you've got to pick it up as you go. And I think that's what was annoying people. It wasn't mm. spoon-fed. Well, yeah, this is it. At no point does anybody say, oh, so it was the silence who blew up the TARDIS. So, yeah, was it? so basically you've <coughs> got two, two different viewers. You've got the casual viewers who won't actually care who blew up the TARDIS. Because yeah. it's just they just watch it week yeah. on week, and you've got the fans who should know who blew up the TARDIS because they're the ones that can absorb twenty odd weeks worth of yeah. narrative, but feel like they and connect the dots together. But spoon fed enough because it, we're, yeah, you know we're living mm, in Star Trek age still, aren't we? But classic series Doctor Who, you wouldn't have an episode where you didn't have a character put his finger up and say, "Oh, so it was X who did Y." And maybe that was the issue with Stephen Moffat, because he doesn't always do that. We just need a space Columbo to walk in at the end and explain it all. Ah, just one more thing. But... <laughs> just one more thing. Well, I don't think it's any secret that Series 6 is my favourite of the new series. Is it? 
Yes. Never said. Well, and it's precisely because of that madness. I don't care necessarily <laughs> if it all adds up. And there are questionable things in there. There's some stuff in uh, in Day of the Moon where the Doctor programs the human race to kill Silence on sight. That's not a very nice bit, and it's not very Doctorish, really. But having said that, that story I think is one of those classics, it's in brilliant. spite of having mm. stuff like that in it. Just because this series is Doctor Who at its most mad and its most outrageous and its most imaginative and its most exciting and its most fun. And those are the things I like Doctor Who for. And that's why I think it's got three times as many votes as Series 7 and, you know, not far off twice as many as Series 2 and 3. It's a moment where you realise they they'd kind of stepped up gear, certainly mm. emotionally, that mm. first episode. <clears throat> seeing the doctor shot like that i mean that was that was filmed and put together so and the scale of it as well you know the fact that they had this big boost in the budget and they're going off to film in america yeah. it just looked that bit more yeah. yeah but what was the really genius thing is that the doctor gets shot and in the very next scene a younger doctor turns up mm. and then the story becomes so big know, yeah yeah that's in what, your brain it's big it's that's the real turning point, mm. and that's the bit where you say, "Oh wow, this yeah. is a place." That yeah, it was an oh wow series. Before. It really yeah. was, yeah, yeah. And I, and if I suppose if you like your Doctor Who's safe, because in spite of the fact that it is all about travelling all over the place, it does tell tend to be quite heavily formatted. You never wore that green coat enough for my liking. I quite like that coat. <laughs> Uh, Matt, <laughs> will you tell us which story came in sixth? I don't know. Which, which... series came in sixth? You're wearing your glasses, oh, aren't you? Um, series eight came in sixth. And again, mm. that's a slight step up in spite of the fact that I don't have the percentages here. You don't like series eight? I can't. <laughs> which one was series eight again? Oh, it's the first Capaldi one. The first Capaldi. Oh, yeah, no, I do like series eight. <laughs> <laughs> and that had Ben Wheatley directing two episodes. Mm. Yeah. Which, you know... I mean, that's that's big. Wrong that. that's, yeah. that's like quite major. <clears throat> Which two did he direct, Matt? He directed Deep Breath and Into the Dalek. Into the Dalek. Well, to be fair, Rachel Talalay has directed two Rachel years, well, two yeah. episodes every year, and she's big, quite big too. She's, she's quite big too. One of my favourite yeah. directors. I think. She's probably a bigger name than he is. I uh, would have thought. No, no, she's a bigger television director than yeah. Ben Wheatley's. Uh, particularly in, in the UK, the UK yeah. but globally, yeah. I should imagine Rachel Talalay is a bigger name than he is. Possibly. I mean, I think she may have been a bigger name in film, but I think after High Rise, Ben Wheatley's probably. Well, doing a... High Rise has since Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, at, at the, the time, time they've yeah. worked on it. Okay. Yeah. They're commensurate. <laughs> in, in, in All right. I think, that's, I think that's about right. I know, yeah. I think Series 8 is Capaldi's best series. I think one of the things that people don't like about it is that he's got his grumpy persona, mm. but I think overall the series is more consistent, tells a more interesting and more involved it's story. Mm. It's the one with Danny Pink. Yeah. So I think it's a really brilliant example of somebody taking Doctor Who and saying, right, how can you tell Doctor Who stories that are still Doctor Who stories, but that are something else as well. 
Because when Russell T. Davis brought it back with series one, he said, OK, we'll still tell stories about monsters invading the Earth, but we will have characters in it with families and lives and backstories that you can become emotionally attached to. That's an extra level emotionally, but it's not really an extra level in terms of narrative. Stephen Moffat takes that emotional level and in series eight with the Danny Pink storyline, turns it into an extra level of narrative. That's something that Doctor Who's never done before. Series eight is completely unique in Doctor Who. And yet, you still have all the monsters invading the Earth stories as well on top. You've got shed loads of gaps as well where fan fiction can be mm. filling in the gaps. Because it's the yo-yo Doctor, isn't it? Where he goes back and forth to pick up Clara, disappears, mm-hmm. comes back and goes, you know, how you doing? How's school been? Look, you you left two seconds ago. Give us a break, something. But um, And the Capaldi, the Capaldi years are full of those gaps so that you can get different versions of the Capaldi Doctor so if mm. somebody's writing fan fiction they can have that kind of darker grumpy Doctor yeah. they can have that kind of lighter Doctor or a Doctor that doesn't know whether he's dark or grumpy yeah. in his last <laughs> his last series yeah. I was going to so, say what is a real achievement in that series is doing what they tried to do with Colin Baker's Doctor but succeeding at it Yeah, and actually t- turning him to somebody who you're actually yeah. not sure whether you like or not and I think and you have to almost like relearn why but, you like him. I but I also think it turned a lot of people off as well. Though. Yeah. Mm. But I think but, that but, hang on. being turned off by that was slightly overplayed in that I think what he's really doing. Mm. And we mustn't forget Doctor Who's a kids series. <laughs> but basically, I said this at the time, but that was four or five years ago, so I'll say it again. He's doing Victor Meldrew for kids mm. in mm. that series. And, and I think he does it really well. Mm. And people have said, oh, the bit where he talks about whether Clara's wearing makeup or not is misanthropic not misanthropic um misogynistic misogynistic but it's not it's just very much a victor meldrewism given a sci-fi twist also people that worry that children aren't going to be engaged in the character children were engaged in 1963 with william hartland yeah yeah so it proves that children can get engaged with this company oh all the kids i know loved pig powdy and this series has had the really touching moment of the cybernized brigadier as well (laughs) <laughs> didn't it that, Australia that didn't it much. Australia that not so much but the no, cyber break wasn't it Australia wasn't that great oh I get it Mark that Australian thing you did at the start of the episode was actually your naturalised accent and you were just pretending to be English ever since <laughs> straight fam yeah <laughs> um, but it does have some really touching stuff at the end yeah. the scene where um, the doctor says to Clara did you think you had to go through all this I was going to say that you get and just walked in well that is just yeah. one of the most emotionally wrenching and mm. beautiful things that's ever been mm. committed to Doctor Who. I did feel more emotional <laughs> watching the Capaldi <laughs> years. Um, as much as I loved Matt Smith's years, I never felt that emotion. I felt it in Russell T. Davis's with David Tennant Rose. That made me feel really emotional. <laughs> um, crying at the end of Doomsday. But um, when I got to the Capaldi series, it came back because his acting his acting is different to Matt Smith's. Mm. Matt Smith's much more upbeat and fun and all that stuff. But I don't know. Capaldi had a weight. <clears throat> and do you know what? We're talking about it again, aren't we? Where fans and everybody was complaining and saying, oh, okay, now it's time for an older doctor. We want an old, grumpy doctor. You know, And actually, you delivered Peter Capaldi on a plate and people complain about it. I love yeah. Capaldi. I wish he'd stayed on for a bit longer. It's not to say I'm not looking forward to the next doctor, but... I wished he'd stayed on for a couple more years. And in fairness to fandom, they very rarely complained about Peter Capaldi 
No, there is. Yeah, as far as I can remember, they were all quite. Peter Capaldi's but great, but the writing, the stories, or the writing, or the scripts he's given. The writing was so bad. So that that was the. Yeah. It's got some great stories in that series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Flatline, yeah. Mummy on the Orient Express, the Caretaker. Yeah. It's fantastic, the Caretaker. Listen, Care- Listen. Caretaker. Listen, okay. Yeah. Kill the moon. Yeah. Still, there's ups and downs on there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Shut <laughs> up. <clears throat> Speaking of having an opinion, and, Matt, seriously, go on. You know, it's got Doctor Chang. Doctor Chang, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. In the nighttime garden, that was a good one. I like that story. Like it gets a lot yeah. of <laughs> abuse. I do like that story. I think it's a great, great moment in Doctor Who that is equivalent. And I've said this before as well. Of course, I think it's the equivalent of the Mind Robber back in 1968 in the Forest yeah, of the Night. Right now, it's kind of a Marmite episode. Isn't it? And it had a cybernized brigadier. Didn't it, Australia? Didn't it? <laughs> wasn't that great? Wasn't that the cyber brig? That was great, wasn't I'm it? Getting a touch of deja vu. <laughs> I'm just enjoying your personal vendetta like, with 42 to tombs. It's like a message to Australia. It's great. No, it's not just 42. It's mostly David Kitchen, to be uh, fair. Well, fair enough. It doesn't <clears> like the cyber brig. Does, um, do I not like the cyber no, brig? I love the cyber brig. So it's great, who, who isn't it, Australia? Like, I was, something. I David Kitchen, who wrote the email we had at the start of the episode, yeah, yeah. his least favourite Doctor Who story mm. of all time mm. is Death in Heaven because of the cybernized brig. I wouldn't go that far. One of my favourites because it made, literally made me cry. Mm. Literally. No, I'm with you. I'm using that word literally wrong. Were you not a fan? No, I've got to admit, I enjoyed the story, but I think that was just. I'm with you there, Mark. Didn't work for me. Sorry. I thought they'd had a really nice touching tribute uh, with Matt Smith where he takes the phone call to say that he's died. I thought that was just the best way you could. Oh, but the difference is. That was a tribute to the actor. The Brigadier Cybernized was a tribute to the character. Why it worked for me is because I didn't see it coming at all. Mm. And then it's, oh my God, it's him. And that's what got me. Mm. Did you actually cry? Yes. Then you did use the word literally properly. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't patronising at all. (laughs) He asked. You were were literally accurate. Yeah. <laughs> that's the name of the next Pet Shop Boys album literally oh literally was the name of their newsletter oh my god <laughs> <laughs> it would be wouldn't it we have someone at work just we've got well, you the, have someone at we've, work we've got, we've got, we've got a, a course called the MA English Literary Studies and this person can't say literary so she just calls it the MA English Literally Studies oh, which that's... I'm almost tempted to try and market it as just uh... literally studies Sorry, Does she on. also say, can you be more pacific? Well, you can say that. It's like a call for peace. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> it's quite nice, rather than specific. It's nice to be more pacific. <laughs> I, guess that, I guess that's one of those areas that might work out nicely in the right situation. Yeah, like Trump. Oh, he's he's no, giving no, one of his he's giving one of his mispronunciation maiden speeches. and He says specific instead of specific. It might cure the world. Let's move on. Talk about a man whose whose name, as far as I was aware, up to a few years ago, was slang for a fart. It is slang. That's for a, a fart. bit harsh on farts, to be fair. <laughs> and now it's slang for a. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Let's take a half-time break and oh, ask no. Mark, who wasn't around when we talked about it, what do you think of the idea of having a woman doctor? Um, <clears throat> if I'm totally honest i wasn't uh if you i think we had this discussion quite a while back when yeah we, when we talked regularly about, on the yeah. show 
and it wasn't really something I was desperate to see. That said, um, when they came up with the reveal, I was actually really excited. Um, and I think it's just, again, going back to saying what I was saying before, I love Capaldi, I want him to stay on. It's not going to happen. Um, so if you're going to change things, let's freshen it up a bit. And I think as much as I've enjoyed seeing him play the Doctor, um, there is a, a a possibility you could end up with you know, a very sort of similar tone carrying on through the years. So I think to have this total reset in quite a big way, I think is quite exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Right, I'm going to do three more quick film reviews and then we'll get into the top five. Okay, what else have I seen? Oh, Cabin 28. (laughs) I think that could be your review. That's Um, the name of this house, isn't it? Just the way you... He came out and was one of the sets in Delta and the Bannerman. <clears throat> Cabin 28 purports to tell like the true movie. story of what actually happened in the Keddie murders, which is a mother and two of her children and one of the children's friends got murdered mm. in this cabin in this place called Keddie in the early 1980s, and there was never any convictions made. So this film purports to tell the true story, but actually it's just an excuse to have three or four people disguised in masks come into a house and... In do a lot masks? Of... Oh, God, that sounds horrendous. <laughs> That's too... yeah. and what, what... Yes, do a lot of stabbing and beating That's... up with hammers. And they're really huge masks, aren't they? Yeah. Which, yeah. which series was this in? Again? I've come to my film reviews. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, I did think. I thought it was a really dark Capaldi episode that I've missed somehow. Um, the trouble with Cabin 28 is... <laughs> They, it's a really small place and there's four people murdered all at the same time. So in order to try and stretch it out, because they really don't bother, they point the finger. But, but they are skin eyewitnesses like squirrels and badgers. That no, 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 it's not a documentary. Okay. They point the finger, but they don't introduce anybody else other than the people they point the finger at. So the film's got no depth, doesn't have any conviction. And instead, to pad out the running time, they do half an hour of build-up before the murders, and they stretch the murders out over 25 minutes, which is really painful. There's two rooms. Imagine, this is sounds like the Blue Box podcast. Well, there's two rooms. There's two rooms on the ground floor of this house. So they really painfully, slowly have people going from one room to the other, and then escaping back into the first room, and then escaping into the other room. And it becomes farcical. And then the last 20 minutes is an interview between the police and the person who they're pointing the finger at as oh. being responsible. Does it end up going round and round in circles where they keep arguing over the same point relentlessly over and over again? <laughs> no. And can't see each other's point of view? No, it's not a blue box. But you mentioned murders, right? <laughs> but And the masks. <laughs> this yeah. takes you up to about an hour and five minutes. So then... You get a five-minute musical sequence where everything's in slow-mo and involving flashbacks to long, slow-mo, black-and-white sequences in silent with the music over them of the characters who've died. And then you get a bunch of captions that stay on the screen forever. And then you get the black-and-white slow-mo flashbacks again. And then you get one page of... (laughs) credits that takes six 
minutes to scroll up oh, wow. the screen. So is this so slowly? I mentioned this in the review. It's like something out of Gus Van Sant's Psycho. I've never seen the credits going up the screen. Does it ever verge towards before. being so bad it's good? No, it's there are. Is this a high budget production? No, <laughs> there are some. Oh. There are some nice bits in it earlier on, but the more it goes on, the more desperate it becomes. When it gets to the murders, which are really dully filmed. They stick on a really inappropriate piece of music in order to try and make an artistic point, but it just looks like a really, really bad rip-off of Tarantino or <coughs> Kubrick or something. I mean, if you want to review a really good horror film, you want to do that um, Borley Rectory, is it called? Hmm. There's a guy in that, amazing actor. He plays the professor, I think. Uh, Have you seen it? No, but I've heard great things about it. Yeah, you'll find he plays the investigator. Oh, right, okay, yeah. 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 Mm. Who else Who is, is in it? that? Oh, it's me. Shear Smith's in that yeah, as well, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met him the other day. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. at a party. Yeah. Clang. Inside number nine. Wow. Literally, it was a... Pl- Sorry, we're going off and I've been a cup of tea and biscuits. Are you in Borley Rectory? I'm in Borley Rectory yeah. for about 60 seconds, maybe oh, okay. 30. So you're not the investigator? I'm one of the investigators, yeah. Mm. But you're not the... Investigate. No, but I've probably got more screen time than anybody else. <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I thought you were winding the handle on the credits at the end. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you usually take six minutes to do No, it. I did that for the film that Giles has been talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but the way he said I've got more screen time, and yeah. the way he pulled his shirt as he was doing it, hey. I thought he was going to say I took up more screen space. <laughs> <laughs> was it filmed in IMAX? Um, no. Oh, no. Okay. Filmed in a small school. <laughs> no, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's a great film. Does anybody anyway. want to tell the listeners what Borley Rectory is? Borley Rectory is uh, an anim- animated documentary that took six years to make. Animated? It's animated. Um, it, well, so you're just a voice? No, no. It's animated to the point that all the background is animated. There's not one live location shoot involved. Everybody's against green screen. So you've got real okay. actors and then you've got... Um, Bit and like Sky you know, Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Yeah, a bit like that, but, but less better. Hazy and fuzzy and rose tinted mm. looking. Um, and it tells the story of Bordy Rexy, which is the most haunted, apparently the most haunted um, house in England, and um, and all the and all the years that it, it had hauntings and the different people that went there. It basically it is just uh, Julian Sands is just narrating this thing, um, and it's really creepy. It's a brilliant, brilliant film, and I'm not just saying that because I know the person who made it. But it genuinely is a really creepy, great film. And if you put it on, turn all your lights off, I guarantee you'll get that shiver up your spine about two or three times through the film, easily. It's a really good piece of cinematography. And Reese Shearsmith is in it. It's doing the rounds at a few festivals, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's going across the globe soon, but it's doing all the UK festivals at the moment. So, Yes, and the, the screening, the premiere screening, was at a place called, um, I'm kind of getting it wrong now, some magic, oh God, what's it called? Magic House, Magic Club, something like that. And it's number nine on the outside. I thought they put it up for a bit of a joke. So when we went through, watched the film, had a Q&A, Reese Shearsmith up there. Somebody pointed out and said, do you realise you're inside number nine? And it went a bit dead flat. So everybody was like, yeah. They didn't get it. So it was, it was, an, odd, it was an odd situation. And the place is beautiful where we went to have it screened. So it's left an indelible mark on me that night. And I talked to Reese so, for a good 20 minutes about crap after two pints of gin. Did <laughs> you ask him if he was replies in his Patrick Troughton in Twice Upon a Time? 
No. Do you ask them about snot monsters? Ice snot monsters. Ice snot monsters. Oh, no, I didn't talk about that either. Didn't talk about Doctor Who. Did you try and get a walk-on part? Oh, no, I did. um, (laughs) League of Gentlemen. No, no. But you remember me. You said, oh, you're one of the investigators. Right. (laughs) Another quick film review. He does does be like that. Evil Under the Sun, another one of the Agatha Christie reissues, which is terrific. It's um, Peter Ustinov's second out- outing as um, Poirot. And, of course, prior to, to David Suchet, he was the sort of... He was the Poirot for a generation of people who like the Agatha Christie's. Evil Under the Sun is the one where... Well, in this instance, it's Diana Rigg who gets bumped off halfway through. And it's the... Uh, I'm not going to say what the story is, but most people who know their Agatha Christie will know it. It's relocated from a small Devon island to uh, the eastern Mediterranean, so it's all very sunny and hot because they had a big success with um, Death on the Nile, which was very sunny and hot. It's terrific fun, what can you say? Are they, re- are they releasing these because of Murder on the Orient Express? Is that timed, do you That's think? That's very cynical, Matt. Do you think it's timed to kind of like cash in on that? <clears throat> Well, that might well be the case. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the so this, one was, this one was set on a Devonshire island. It was originally in the novel, but then they relocated it for the film. And it, it wasn't called, and then there were none. Or was that the no, oh, no, no she's done two novels yeah. based on the same island. Ah, there yeah. we go. Two, Mark? Yeah. If you I read her entire back catalogue. Okay, well, those two, yes. that, the two we've mentioned. Yeah. Okay, all right, fair enough. She, yeah. This is... Burr Island. Yeah. Mm. This is... Um, Probably about as famous as that. To be fair, okay. this is a very well-known story. Mm. Was it called? Was it always called Evil, Evil Under the Sun? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really evoke Devon, does it? <laughs> um, it might do. It, it. it might do back in the nineteen whenever it was made, mm. because people were still coming to Devon for the sun. This oh. was like before Engl- you had cheap flights abroad. Yeah. The English Riviera. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. It's my favourite novel of hers, of the pirate ones. It's really good. Okay, you're almost right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, one more film to review. Miracle Mile came out in the late 1980s. Ooh, Tangerine it's, Dream soundtrack. Yes, uh, and it is starring Anthony Edwards, who was um, George Clooney's co-heartthrob in ER. It's a romantic comedy about nuclear Armageddon. It's <laughs> any good. Yeah. It's To be fair, it's not really a comedy. It starts out looking like... If you don't know anything about the film going in, from the first five minutes, you'll think, oh, this is a romantic comedy. And then he takes a phone call where the person at the other end of the line's dialed the wrong number. And he's saying, Dad, 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 70 minutes before America's destroyed in a nuclear Armageddon. I think you've got the wrong number. Oh, shit. Get shot dead. While Anthony Edwards is listening on the other end of the telephone line. And Anthony Edwards is now thinking, hang on, did that really happen? Have we really literally just got 70 minutes to get the hell out of America? And the rest of the film is uh, him trying to track down this girl he's just met in the first five minutes and get the hell out of L.A. before the bombs fall. Current affairs. <clears throat> yes, I'm pointed out in my review, actually. This could be even more prescient than the... Uh, or even more timely than the Agatha Christie reissues. That was a nervous laugh, laugh for me, by the way. I'm not... I'm making them angry. I don't, don't want to see America destroyed. <laughs> Yeah. It was a bit of a flop when it came out, but it's got quite a cult following. And I've got to say, the DVD and the um, Blu-ray have got a terrific extras package. Yeah. So if it's a film you like, it is absolutely well worth going out to buy this. 
And if you have never heard of it, if you've never heard of it, I wouldn't say it's a good film, but I would say it's a very entertaining film. And and to, to give it its due, as the tension ramps up, it really does ramp up the tension. It works. Mm-hmm. But I shan't say how it ends. Is it very eighties? Has it got that eighties? Um, there's 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 a couple of characters in it who could not be more eighties, <laughs> with just ridiculous, horrible hairstyles. Mm. But apart from that, no, because the setting and the the time span is so squeezed. No, it's not especially eighties. Mm. It's not a John Hughes film, but it's not a million miles away. It does have a nice undercurrent as well where because he's heard this phone call and then he tells somebody and then they tell somebody else. By the end of the film, there's panic in the streets. People are getting killed. People are getting their cars broken into. Is there panic in the streets of London? It's Los Angeles. Panic in the streets of Birmingham? Shops are getting looted and all this kind of stuff. And there's this... You miss Mark, haven't you? No. And there's this undercurrent to the film. Is nuclear Armageddon actually happening? Or have all these people died? All these shops got broken into? All these cars got stolen? Because this guy misunderstood a phone prank. Mm, Interesting. So I shan't say which way it falls. Mm. But it gets to the point where that sort of comes up. Sounds good. Sounds great. Right, top five. In fifth place, I was going to go to you, Mark, but after that, Lee. In fifth place, series four. I thought it's done well, isn't it? Well, no, but the amount of this is the Catherine Tate one. Yes, this is the Catherine Tate one. I thought with this being the Catherine Tate one, and the sheer amount of people who always say, "Oh, I quite like X series, but it's not as good as series four. Oh, I quite liked X Companion, but they're not as good as Catherine Tate." I kind of thought this one was going to win. And here it is. It's in fifth. It's not even the highest place. Russell T. Davis by two. Mm. You know? Uh, no, sorry. There's one above it. So what the hell happened? Why is Series 4 only in fifth place and not in the top? Doctor's Daughter. Catherine Tate. Dragging it down. Like <laughs> oh. a... Huh? But that's not true because there's like there'll be a bad there can be a bad episode in any series. I know, no, I know. So it's my, like it's a pretty bad. One. My problem is I can't, I can't. There isn't a, there isn't a real for me. There isn't a real high point in this series. They're all all right. They're all good. But even the Moffat stories, even the the library two parter, it's not. Blink. It's not as good as Blink. Mm. They're mm. all sort of. Yeah. They're all kind of. It's a solid series because they're all kind of second best stories. And it's got Midnight and Turn Left. And turn but left I mean, I'm on the record as saying they're both good, mm, mm. but they're not but yeah. fantastic. No, they aren't. Write home to your grandmother. Yeah, I'd write home to my grandmother and tell about Midnight. Midnight. Really? I yeah. Oh, it's I got a really good there. conceit and it's really well made, but it's not a great story. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you're wrong. It's not, it's not as good as the, the um, uh, Heaven Sent. It's not as good as Which is a similar sort of concept. <laughs> well, is it? What? Doctor, the Doctor on his own fighting to get out of whatever that was. It's, mm. a, it's just an ensemble cast and mm. it's like an Agatha Christie novel with an alien in it. Yeah. I love it. It's great. Okay. Yeah, it's yes, just, but it's easy unlike... On the I came away from it and it's brilliant. But, but unlike an Agatha Christie, Midnight doesn't have a resolution. 
Well, they all get out alive apart from one or two. Yeah, well, that's the end, but it's not a resolution. It doesn't have an explanation. But no. that's why I like it. It doesn't have an explanation. Yeah. Isn't that why you're yeah, like saying that? That's, 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 that's the fact that they're often no, Moffat gives you an explanation, but he just doesn't put a pin in it. He doesn't spell it out. In the Russell T. Davis one, there is no explanation. No, I think that's a, I think that's a good thing about. <laughs> yeah, we never see it, but it doesn't. It like, but it doesn't spring it to my mind as being, as being. I mean, it's a good conceptual episode, but it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't like come to the forefront of my mind when I think of good conceptual. To me, it's almost like Poltergeist on a plane or something like that. You know, it's it's a really there wasn't there a, a oh, yeah, great yeah, seventies yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> aeroplane with the Poltergeist on it was hilarious. But um, terror at forty thousand feet. You're thinking of William Shatner, aren't you? Oh, that's the as Twilight well. Zone. Yeah, anything like that where you've got a confined space and there's something slightly creepy and odd, and you've got a ca- it's character based and actually a lot of human reaction. Turning upon each other very quickly, turn upon the doctor very quickly, mm. ready to throw him out. You know, that was a great high tension point. And like I said before, if you can write it so it's good enough to go on stage, that's a strong. I, I strong remember bit there of being a, writing to me. I remember there being. Well, it a, would be for theatre. Yeah, yeah. I remember there being a lot of talk by the people who made it because they had interviews on Doctor Who Confidential and before saying this is going to be frightening and this idea is really frightening. Them talking together is really frightening. And I just thought. Them talking together, that's good, but I didn't find it all that. I didn't have quite that sort of feeling of shock. But did you see that? Shock did that, you know that before watching it? Was that the hype that killed it? I don't, I think, I don't think so. I think I just, I'm just not scared by the same things that Russell T. Davis is scared by. Maybe, but maybe, maybe I'm scared by also, the same things that Stephen Moffat's scared by. Yeah, but you also chose the right actress or actor yeah, to play yeah. the part. You know, the woman who played Scar was perfect because yeah, actually. Yeah. It was the woman that freaked my son out more than the actual concept. <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's one of Russell T. Davis' strongest stories. That's a whole bunch in my of opinion. Good in there. Well, that's midnight. There are also twelve other episodes <laughs> in <laughs> series four, and I've got to say, other than that, you've got Catherine Tate and David Tennant sparking off each other. The rest of series four is absolutely Russell T. Davis' Doctor Who by numbers. I think I've said it before, the best Dr. Donna stories are these Big Finish ones. Certainly one of those Big Finish ones is better than anything in Series 4. Probably, yeah. I don't know, Series 4 lacks something. And I think... It lacks the spark of ingenuity. I think what it lacks is the cyber brigadier. Doesn't it, Australia? (laughs) (laughs) It lacks lacks a cybernised brigadier. Which right. is great. I also like the madness of the stolen earth and all that business yeah, at the end. That's pretty bonkers. And the it's Davros bonkers, is great. Davros, Davros is really do well done. Yeah. I mean, all of these things are really well done. I just didn't. They just didn't grasp me. So, turn left was a really fantastic idea. I loved the idea, but actually, it didn't grasp me. They didn't really sort of. And when you get to the end, explode it. the last fifteen minutes of turn left is basically Catherine Tate and Rose Tyler shouting at each other in a car park. What better TV is there, mm. JR? <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. It, up to the point where, what's it called, Colasante goes off in the back of the truck. Brilliant. But from mm. that point onwards, dreary. Turn left. Mm. And again, it, like Midnight, it's an idea that doesn't add up. For all that it's brilliantly done, if you actually pick it apart, it doesn't have anything at its core. 
Well, you've got the universe without the Doctor, and you see it all happening around you. Yes, but a the universe. But it's up. not a universe without the Doctor. It's a dream. It's an imagination. Yeah, I know. So there's no real threat. Colossanti doesn't really die. Donna just imagines he dies while she's sitting in a shop with a big insect on her. My understanding of how the trickster works doesn't work like that. In Sarah Jane, the trickster didn't work like that. No, I think you can. It was actually manipulating time. You need to get them to. But that's not what's presented in Turn Left. In Turn Left, it's just presented as her imagination, isn't it? Which which Moffat did did do in the last series with. What's it's called? Latin name. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, but that... <laughs> Somebody remember what the name of the story is. Where it's all extremist. in... Extremist. Yeah, extremist. But that's not happening in somebody's imagination. That's actually a computer program yes. where yeah. the parts of the computer program have their own autonomy. Yes, but it's still got that same sort of... It's still got what you're talking about is, in the end, it's all... Outside all of reality. Dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. But it still has a potency as far as the character's concerned. Yeah, the whole idea of the Doctor operating within a, yeah, within cyberspace being as effective. Oh yeah, as any and, other I, and I'm sort of disagreeing with Jr. That yeah, I, I don't, I don't, so mi- I don't mind that Turn Left turns out to be effectively a dream. I think it still works. Mm. Yeah. But what I think I just happens really, I don't know what the word is. I mean, it's, I know it's supposed, to, I know it's supposed to be dark and grey. But the issue with Turn Left is that it's a dream. Mm. But Ross T. Dave. Russell T. Davis writes it as a dream, but also presents it as an alternative universe. Mm. So it doesn't know what it is. Whereas no, Extremist knows what it other. is. I think it complements each think... other. I don't know if it doesn't know what it is. Well, no. It's quite it... strong. No, if you get down to the bones of turn left. Oh, God. I disagreed. <laughs> How about it now? <laughs> No, well, no, no but it's what down you... to the conclusion, isn't it? It's all about the conclusion, the fact that it it's like somebody just wakes her up from it. I know you I know what you're saying. Yeah. But Russell T. Davis's script seems to present the idea that if she doesn't wake up, then the universe will collapse. Yes. Well, no, if she doesn't wake up, she just doesn't wake up. Why would the universe collapse if she doesn't wake up? Well, as I say, I, I'm just thinking about how the trickster works because there's that Sarah Jane story, isn't there, where he removes Sarah Jane from yeah. time, doesn't he? He changes two people over in time and they have to change time back again. But there, he's actually changing time. That's not just a dream. Right. Well, the, every time the trickster turns up, it's mm. entirely different. They just basically use the character in order to tell stories with time paradoxes or whatever mm-hmm. so Russell T I'm Davis I'm sure there was a line in there that, that affected the real world otherwise there wouldn't be any tension you're right that's what I'm saying Russell T Davis is presenting this dream as if it affects the real world but it's still I mean, just a dream I'm sure there's a line in there that says, that says it does yes there might well be a line otherwise that, what's the point there might well be a line that says it does but that doesn't mean it does no, you're right, because it's a TV programme. <laughs> Shall we it move really on? doesn't affect real life, does it? The story that came in fourth. Simon. The series. The series that came in fourth. I keep saying story. Series one. So, so this one. This is when the Doctor tells the TARDIS from Galifant. It was. It's a long-running joke that I've been doing, building up to when we get to series one, so I can say... So, so William Hartnell this one? and oh no, 
Yeah, well, that's who's on. <laughs> so this is Russell T. Davis's could be better most consistent series, and I thought this had a good chance of being top sort of two as well. But mm. actually, it's outside the top three. Um, mm. So possibly the reason it's not come because I think. I know there are people who don't like the Slitheens story, for example. But other than the Slitheens story, I don't think people have got many complaints about Series 1. And I think most of the compliments that Series 1 gets are about how well tied together the story is. The story not being the story of Bad Wolf, but the story being the story, the threads about the time war that brings the Daleks to Earth and Rose and the Doctor to station 500 or whatever it's called at the end it's a really well worked out story i think there are two issues with it one is that maybe it doesn't try hard enough doesn't show us any alien planets doesn't show us as many monsters i mean there was one point during series one where i thought are we really getting zombies again this week because we just seem to be getting zombies all the time and maybe I don't know, but maybe there's a bit of an issue with Rose in that she starts off in love with Mickey, then she's in love with the Doctor, then she's in love with Adam, and then she's in love with Captain Jack, and then she's in love with the Doctor again. Mm-hmm. Across the space of three months, she's fallen for five different blokes. I think I think probably she isn't in love with all the five. I I'm think exaggerating to make a point but, there, but, Matt. But there is a point that she's in love with the Doctor. She She's in, like... A sort of casual thing with Mickey, she flirts with. I don't Adam. think she's she... in a casual thing with Mickey. He's her boyfriend. Uh, yes, but in the relationship terms, it's pretty casual. So they go down the pub. It's not like a sort of a whirlwind. A whirlwind. The it's big, a, the main stale, relationship is with the doctor. Relationship, isn't it? You can yeah. imagine being together for about three years. Certain, and nothing's she's happened. certainly not in love with Adam or Captain Jack. She's just flirting with the them. The point sort of... I was making, Matt, yes. is that by the end of the series. She's had her head turned by every character who's turned up. Yeah. Which well, she's a nineteen year old girl. And she's not actually going out with a doctor. So it's it's what Yes, but girl, uh, girls do, isn't it? Okay. Boys. If I need to spell it out that it's that you're seeing this across ten hours of screen time. In other words, you get rid of Adam and in the very next episode you've got Captain Jack. And then two episodes later, it's back to the Doctor. And then even in between then, Mickey turns up and they promise to go to a hotel with each other. Well, hang on a minute. Okay, so it's, look, she, it's leaves, not... she, she leaves Mickey to get on board the TARDIS and have adventures with the Doctor, right? She it's... admires the Doctor, or you can see her slowly falling in love with him. Adam comes along, he's like a young version of the Doctor. It's a... So she's kind of... <sighs> Lee, you're missing the point entirely. It's about Captain how Jack. much... I'm getting flashbacks, Mark. What about you? Yeah. <laughs> it's like good old days, isn't it? It's about how much Russell T. Davis squeezes in... I know. ...in such a small I amount of time. time. You didn't get enough chance to sort of get over the fact that you'd had Adam for two episodes before Jack yeah. turns up for three stories. But I don't think at any point throughout that series the idea is that really the Rose, Rose is going to actually... We don't... We're not... Did you want Rose to go with an older man? Was that the thing? Because I, I was honestly, because he is, because Rexton is forty-five or whatever. She's not supposed to be nineteen. It's quite a large gap there, even if it was human terms. So to me, it never felt like that was the natural thing. It almost felt like she was falling for him, 
because she admired him and she loved him in a, in a slightly different way. When he turned into David Tennant... The fact she'd lost her dad as well. Which is yeah, the that. So, you know, it was... When David Tennant came along, it almost gave her a... Re, you know, a, what's the word? Permission to fall in love mm. properly with the Doctor. And, it and we could have a proper and it didn't romance. And it didn't feel to me when I was watching it like she was bouncing from relationship to relate or from love interest to love interest. <clears throat> Yeah, well, she was a it bit. Did, well, it it did give the impression yeah. she was. I don't know, it was a word. flirty. Fickle, it was, uh, yeah, flirty, 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 but flirty was more like a her her character rather than her relationship with these these men. Mm. It didn't feel like Adam was a serious contender for her affections. It just felt like that's what that's how Rose acted around the guys that were in the script. She sort of flirted mm. with them. It's not like Ace in. In that that last season, where she's sort of flirting with the Russian soldier and she's flirting with this guy and that guy, really badly. Yeah, that felt a bit awkward. Yeah, but this this time it just felt like it was it wasn't it wasn't to do with Rose's sort of drive to be in a relationship or Rose's romance. But your it point felt is, like it just was Rose's squished quite a lot into that. that yeah, dynamic, my point which... is not what Rose is doing, but the fact that. Russell T. Davis throws in five instances of it in ten stories. Hmm. It's he really throws the kitchen sink at that series and doesn't give any of those things room to breathe. Adam's brought on as the companion who couldn't. We never get to see him being the companion who couldn't because he joins the TARDIS at the end of one episode and at the start of the next episode he goes off by himself and at the end of that episode they kick him out. You never get to see Adam being a companion with the Doctor and Rose. Jack, he turns up in the Empty Child 2 parter, so you get two episodes of introduction. At the end of that two episodes of introduction, they say, come aboard the TARDIS. And in the next episode, Rose goes off with Mickey. And you never get to see what Jack's like as part of that team before you get to the finale. And then you get to the finale, and again, you've got Mickey and Jackie. You never get to see what Jack would be as a regular member of the TARDIS team. It's just throwing, 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 throwing things at the screen and never allowing any of those things to breathe. Yeah, and I remember that. I remember that at the time when they came back for Boomtown. Boomtown. And, um, you know, Mickey's response was our response. was, oh, God, look at you lot going off having adventures. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like he's missed out because we've missed out. We've missed out on all these so-called adventures. And it was kind of clever because it was like, oh, that's instant bonding. Yeah, we've missed about six months of their life. We'll feel that in with fan fiction or whatever, but part of me felt a little bit cheated. I, I would like to have seen them all. And you get that line that in, um, I don't know if it's Aliens of London or slightly later, where Rose says to Mickey, God, you should see alien planets, how beautiful they are. And mm. the audience at home is thinking, Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing that too. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you get it in the book, don't you? The first time she stepped on an alien planet. Yeah. I mean, books. Right, Joe, you spent quite a lot of time talking about what you didn't like about Series 1. Well, Let's listen to what you did like about Series 1. Well, maybe if I could have got the rest of that sentence out. <laughs> but individually, all of the stories in Series 1, with a couple of exceptions that are slightly more middleweight, I think all of the stories are really good. It's And there's a consistency of storytelling throughout the series. Just think he tries to pack a bit too much in that first year, probably because he doesn't know whether he's going to get a second go at it. Yeah. I didn't like a lot of the stories. 
Well, I think I think you're a Cyberman. I think when it was when it was <laughs> when it was on, it was like the first series that came back, and so it was incredibly exciting. But now there's enough time distance looking back on it. Very few of them, I think. Oh, I'm really good. I really want to watch End of the World now, or I wouldn't really want to watch Boontown now. I think there are a few that. But there are not many Doctor Who stories that you rewatch anyway. We did watch The End of the World relatively recently for the podcast, and we all absolutely loved it. There are quite a few that I would want to rewatch, I think. But just Doctor Who's funny, this, you this know. Series is sort Especially of a these series, there's so much, like you say, packed into it. There's what funny one-liners going all the way through that first series that you forget, and it's only when you go back and you go, "Oh my god, this, this is packed full of gags and mm. jokes and." And, and you know and fun and it's really really quick and it's slick and the characters are excellent people like Jackie and all that you know you can't always forget that she's in it but she's a major part of a lot of them a lot of her background Rose's background and she's really important as well I think because she becomes a, a bigger character in the second series all those elements that we kind of forget all the subtle nuances of, of all of these series you forget until you go back and watch it like yeah. I did with Wedding a River Song I went oh this is really we've good. been re-watching series 8 at home and uh, my wife was struck by how much humour there was in it because she remembered it as being really dark and mm. you know grumpy doctor but there is a lot of humour there mm. so you do tend to forget these things and there's a cyber brigadier as well <laughs> no, in third place Mark the series that came third is series nine wow which is actually probably higher than I thought it might be because the you alright Matt god Matt yes. Matt's having do you really need telling eyes no, this is the second head. the second Capaldi this Correct. is the Capaldi one that starts and ends with Davros or starts with Davros and ends with Gallifrey isn't it yes okay fine Alright. <laughs> I worked it out because I'd been told what series eight was, so I could add one. Wow. I've got a system. You've got to have a system. Wow. There's only three series for each of these doctors and one for Eggleston. You shouldn't I know. Do you think right. a lot of the votes for series nine are because of the love for Heaven Sent? No. I think a lot of the votes for series nine are because there's a lot more two parters. So yeah. it feels more like the classic series. Mm-hmm. Although again, there's uh, apart from the snot monsters, I think it's a great series. Yeah, you know. um, I my issue with it was that, and this is sort of this is the contrary to where Mark was talking about a few seconds ago. But series nine, my issue with it with was that we should have seen the Clara and the Do- Clara and the Doctor having fun, and we actually just kept seeing the more serious adventures. And not the fun ones. Mm. But apart from that, it's a very consistent series that tells a very straightforward story across the entire series. And I know a lot of people didn't like the way it ended, but that was always where that series was going, and that just seemed like the perfect ending to me. There was a sort of mythic mythic feeling to Series 9, partly because of the two-parters, I think. So that sort of the Davros two-parter and the Gallifrey two-parter you had the feeling that they actually felt like big stories that were being mm. told. And it did feel to me, at least, that it was very much aimed at the fans rather than mm. being a more sort of general audience. Yeah, but at a point in the series where most of the general audience would probably mm-hmm. fall into the category of being fans by now, anyway. I think mm-hmm. Stephen Moffat gets to the stage where he just doesn't 
doesn't yeah. make that line between fans and and the general audience because it's been so popular in the past. There was a thing that came up about Davros, and I've heard this from a number of people, saying The Magician's Apprentice is a sequel to Genesis of the Daleks. The Magician's Apprentice doesn't work if you don't know who Davros is. The Specifically, the cliffhanger at the end of the cold open doesn't work when a kid turns around and says, my name's Davros, because why would people know who Davros is? Okay. In spite of the fact that Davros... His last appearance on television was in the most watched Doctor yeah. Who story of the entire new series, with the exception of uh, a couple of Christmas specials, but the most watched story in sort of regular series run. Was there really can't... a complaint about that? Yeah, who, lots of people. Who, who Regardless, you're going to find out who he is in the next part. So. Well, <laughs> this is the, the point Wait, of that story, is that it's telling a story about a confidence tricks that Davros pulls on an aspect of the Doctor's personality that he discovers as a child. So, of course, you see a flashback to him discovering this as a child. The Doctor's weakness is the fact that if he thinks you're in trouble, he'll help you out. And Davros plays on this as an adult. So, of course, you see it as a child. I know somebody just like that in real life. Anyway. So, that'd be me. No, 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 no. Nobody in this room. Um, but yeah, this was always, and again, in that sort of mythic thing, you've got the concept of the hybrid, which again is one of those things that's not spelled out by Stephen Moffat. But if you yeah. look at the dialogue across that final episode, it's quite clearly pointed out that the hybrid is the Doctor and Clara. Yeah, that's with bit, you, Joe. That's right? a bit of a red I think to me. Series eight is a far more consistent series than series nine. There's I think peaks and troughs in series nine. I think the peaks in series nine are among the greatest of the new yeah, series. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But I think series eight is more consistent across the run. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You think about, I mean, the second half of the flood two-parter is in there, isn't it? And <clears throat> sleep no more, and sort of the. T- I I like the two Ashilda episodes in the middle. Mm. But for a lot of people, they're very run of the mill. Well, Mark shaking his head. Yeah. Yeah. You could oh, lean yeah. into the microphone a bit more really when you did, speak. Really did nothing for me at all. Okay, you, don't bother. You didn't like, <laughs> like Lenny the Lion. What's the matter with no. <laughs> I just wonder if consistency is good enough. I think that the, pe- you, it's yeah. the, the peaks which which actually make Doctor Who. I think yeah, consistency, but... especially with the new series, consistency is good and solid. But it's always going to be slightly less than but eight. Best. Is not consistency without peaks. It's Mummy on the Orient Express, mm, Flatline. Mm. I think Death in Heaven is a huge peak, and Listen, which is I think yeah. one of the greatest Doctor Who episodes yeah, of time. all time. These are all in series eight. So eight is consistency with peaks. Nine is peaks, but without the consistency. Dipping below the line a little bit. Mm. Nine is a up lot. and down. I know what you're saying. Consistency, you could say, could equate to bland. Yeah, but I don't. I think because it's near the top of the graph. If you see what mm. I mean. <clears throat> yeah, I don't think eight is. I think six and eight are probably my two favourite series since the return. Do you want to find out what came second then? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Funny. Who have I not asked to say one in the second half? Uh, Matt. You can say what came second. It's series five. Wow. So I'm not Matt surprised. First. Just... Thank you. Oh, thank you. No, I, I got this one because I could remember voting for it. But 
So I'm I not surprised really... this ended up as high as it did because I know there's a huge amount of love for Matt Smith's first series. I always and... think of the colour green with this series. I don't know why. Do you? I think yeah. grey. I do. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a washed out tone. I think to mauve. It. I've got yeah. rainbow colours for this one. Oh. Really? Yeah. I don't. I don't care to be perfectly honest and this is why your experiment is going to find out that you're a colourless brick oh yeah <laughs> and a good reference to a conversation we've had yeah, not on the podcast exactly yeah, but no. colourless brick hey in an hour and a half podcast who's counting who's um, listening <laughs> <laughs> series 5 doesn't work for me it uh, opens with the strongest premier Doctor story I think that was great great opening yeah. I think it does Yeah, I no, it does. think it opens with an episode that's got some really great moments and mm. keeps moving so fast that you don't realise how thin it is I think I, there's some really I great character to... stuff but there's no story 11th hour is 60 minutes without a story that's uh, I suppose I see it as there's a situation in which you discover about the new Doctor basically which is which is the role of? I it's suppose. the best one of the new series, mm. of the introductory episodes, up until that point at least. Mm. But I still don't think it's a good episode. It's not in space. Mm. I think deep for me. Well, for me, deep mm. breath pips it. But Ooh, I really like. No, I don't think yeah. so. I really like the eleventh hour. Well, deep breath is full of really that. great moments. It's very thin on story again, though. Mm. That's what I'm thinking. I can't think of what happens in Deep Breath, apart from... There's some really, really, really long scenes in Deep Breath. Mm. There's like a couple of scenes at the end that between them take up about 25 minutes. But they do it on purpose, don't they? They're on purpose. They they extend the lengths of the scenes to give you more time. So that's a kind of an intentional thing. Whereas Eleventh Hour is the opposite of Deep Breath in that it's really short scenes and really sort of running from A to B to Z so maybe together it would be a good double bill I think he thinks he's American did he say Z he A did. to B to C oh sorry oh. <laughs> <laughs> ahead you don't Z. go from A to oh. B to Z no no you don't or Z. we both looked at each other and thought what are you talking about yeah um, but I think for me the issue with series 5 is it's kind of a halfway house between Moffat and yeah. Davis and I don't think Moffat really takes off until the two-parter at the end. I think from the two-parter at the end, I think then you get maybe, in a row, the five best episodes of modern Doctor Who. Not necessarily the five best episodes, but the run, the best run of five episodes. From uh, the Pandorica opens to the Day of the mm. Moon, with Christmas Carol in between. Okay, people are doing their maths now. Pandorica opens, Big Bang, no, no, Christmas Carol, yeah. Impossible Astronaut, Day of the Moon. I think it's the strongest run of five episodes in the modern series. But what? I, but the, you're missing my point, Matt, by trying to work out whether there's another run of five episodes that's stronger. The oh, point no, no, I'm no, making I'm, is... No, no, I've already worked out there is, but go on. <laughs> the point I'm making is, <laughs> prior to the Pandorica opens, series five tonally and thematically is kind of fishing around to find itself. Unlike series one, where Russell T. Davis hits the ground running with his vision of Doctor Who, 
it's almost like Stephen Moffat. He knew the things he wanted to do, but he didn't have a vision that made them a consistent package. So come across as um, emulating a lot of... Yeah, things like The Hungry Earth is a very Russell T. Davis type story. The Eleventh Hour is a Russell T. Davis story with a Stephen Moffat wash. Mm. Then you've got The Beast Below. There's a lot of little riffs in there. nice, but doesn't feel like anything. Yeah, there's a lot of little riffs in Eleventh Hour which don't transfer into the rest of that series. Mm. Which is quite... I quite like that. And I quite like that sort of eclecticness. And I quite like the hybrids, Mm. Moffat, Russell T. Davis. I didn't, well, I didn't so think did a lot of other people. A, yeah, I didn't think it was a failure. I love Vincent and the Doctor. I still feel that is one That's of the best really new series yeah. episodes yeah. for me. I'd forgotten about Vincent mm-hmm. and the Doctor. But I just... It just doesn't gel for me in the way that six or eight do. But I had a feeling it would come out pretty strong and it's come second. I think Eric Escamilla from uh, Mostly Harmless Cutaway must have voted about 20 times, maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I think actually series seven should be where that is. Well, you think series five should be on the bottom? Which one's series seven again? God, please. Don't. <laughs> the series that won, which I'm going to read out because anybody who's listening must already know. Series ten. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a slap. That is. <laughs> Really I, won't, I won't be asked back. You've, you've genuinely given me a new sensation, which is feeling sorry oh, no. for JR. Oh, wow. I never thought that I could feel. Look at look at his face. Look at, look at JR's face. face. Uh, he's, he's doing like, that. He's doing that he's thing like, of being somebody in trouble. He's like broken slightly. You've broken JR. That's a slight. Do it again. <laughs> let's a, let's see how far we can push him. JR, what came first? Why has series ten come first? Because it's the most recent one. <laughs> yes. Well, no, because Doctor Who fans don't vote according to most recent. We're no. talking Mark, about Mark did. <laughs> <laughs> Mark voted it first. I did indeed. Yeah. Look at that. But he didn't vote it first because it was the most recent. No, this is true. Everybody who voted in this poll knows the entire history of Doctor Who. Nobody in this poll voted for the most recent thing because it was the most recent thing. So why did Series Ten come top? Is it because the concept was pretty good, the acting was great, the bill was fantastic, um, there was a, it was quite a consistent tone throughout as well. It also feels it's quite an enclosed series. Yeah. So if you're yeah. voting for individual series, the problem I had was these some of these series blur together, which is why I've got confused. Mm. So series two and three, maybe three and four, maybe seven and eight... I find it difficult sometimes to distinguish between them. Where does Listen come? Where did Vincent of the Doctor come? Whereas Series 10 is its own identity, its own series. So it's easier to vote for. And I think they do, you do get votes because it's the most recent. Mm -hmm. But I think that's also, that's also part of its popularity is because it's memorable and because you remember where it begins, where it ends and what's in it. It it is like taking Doctor Who and starting it again. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Yeah, you know, and that's 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 a no mean feat. I think it did feel like a soft reset. Yeah. I think more than that, it's unlike series five, where some of the tone of Russell T Davis was bleeding in. With series ten, what you got was the tone of Stephen Moffat, but the complexity or lack thereof of Russell T Davis. So it was like Stephen Moffat with all the 
things that people didn't like, if there were things in there that weren't spelled out, in Series 10 they were spelled out, mm. etc. All those things that people... It felt maybe a bit more mainstream. Yeah, the things that people maybe didn't keep up with if they were starting to lose interest weren't there not to be kept up with. I've seen a few people uh, who... Oh, just to finish that thought, and the bit where people said Series 10 was great except for was the bit in the middle where it suddenly did go Stephen Moffatty for three episodes. Mm -hmm. Go on, Mark. I've seen a few people who had fallen out of love with the series from the start of Capaldi, not necessarily anything to do with him as such, but just the way the series... Either speak up or lean in. Um, But I think they felt that Series 10, they could come back on board again. It felt more like what they thought Doctor Who should be. Yeah. yeah. That relationship between the Doctor and Bill and having Nardole as well, who was... That was quite a surprise. I I really wasn't overly impressed when they said that Matt Lucas was going to be coming back because I thought his stint at that time in the one episode he'd been in that that pretty much summed his story up, but I'm really glad they brought him back because I thought he was really, really good. Um, and there are some great stories in there as well. Except I think the character of Bill was poor. I think she was really well performed by Pearl Mackey. doesn't mm. stand up to much analysis, really. She's the nice bits to the character. Mm. But in terms of a character, she's a victim in... One story, she's yeah. a victim in the next she was story. So strong, she's a witness. So strong and interesting in the first few episodes. No, not even the oh, first few episodes, just the first episode. In the second episode. The dynamic between her and the Doctor, yes, you're absolutely right. It was it was there, wasn't it? They were firing off. Yeah. But, but she was great, but you're right. But what know. does she do? She doesn't do anything throughout the entire set. The only episode in which she solves something is Lie of the Land, which was the one that go, voted bottom in our poll, you know, a few months ago at the end of the series. And apart from that, she's either a witness or a victim all the way through. Yes, well, maybe nice they dynamic. Vote for Pearl Mackey then, rather than Bill. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, on the subject of that monk's three-parter, I say this now on the podcast for the record because this seems to have gone over people's heads. People have been moaned about the consistency of those three episodes. Right, I will repeat. Those three episodes, those three storylines, came to the series as three entirely unconnected stories. And Stephen Moffat said, why don't we connect them by making the villain in all three stories the same villain? So originally, there would have been a story about the internet. There would have been a story about a pyramid at the end of the world. And there would have been a story sort of about a sort of 1984-type Britain, and they would have been entirely unconnected. And Stephen Moffat said, why don't we put them together? And then, while they were in the process of putting those three stories together, Stephen Moffat's mother was taken very ill, spent some time in hospital, and died. And so Stephen Moffat, instead of having the time to put those three stories together in the way he would have wanted to, was a little bit distracted by spending a lot of time in hospital with his dying mother. And if those three stories are a bit weaker, in the connections between the three episodes with each other than they should have been, that's the reason why. But I think as three episodes, 
they stand up as long as you don't connect them too strongly with one another. That's why they're weak. And I don't think that's necessarily a weakness in each of the individual episodes, but a weakness in the trilogy mm. only as a trilogy. I wonder what the Pyramids episode would be like without the monks, because I think the monks mm. are one of the few things that keep, well, that, I, af- yeah, keep that afloat. That was, I mean, the lie of the, 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 the land has a strong concept, mm. and actually the monks almost get in the way of the concept because it distracts from it. Mm. And what's the other one extremist extremist I want to say excelsior um, extremist is a really good concept and the monks work because they've just been introduced but mm. that middle one is the, is the it's the weak link it's the weak link between the three I think so <laughs> but then if the monks hadn't been in it and it had been something else and the resolution would have been slightly different obviously because they wouldn't have had to save the doctor by giving him his eyesight <coughs> back and so the monks take over so presumably that bit at the end, the Doctor would have got out and the invading aliens would have been banished at the end of that story. Mm. That could have been slightly stronger because they wouldn't have had <coughs> that ending. And I think mm. that ending slightly undermines the rest of the story. Yeah. There's just a few things in those three, isn't it? It's just the pacing's a bit off and some of the directorial choices are a bit weird. And that does seem like, <coughs> like you say, someone who's been dis- very distracted and has left the team to get on with it in a way. I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but, and it's, you know, can you, do this. I'm, I'm but he did say in Doctor Who magazine that he was rewriting scenes on a laptop uh, on the chair by his mother's bed in the hospital. Right. So there we go. I mean, that's it. Yeah. <coughs> but I feel like rewatching those three now. I mean, it's 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 been time enough for me to go back and revisit it. And I liked the idea and I liked the feeling of all three of those. And, uh, you know, the, the concept's brilliant. But I'm just hoping when I go back and watch it again, I can get past the the odd editorial. Well, I think the first and the third are really good. I think it's the middle one that kind of yeah. sinks a bit of a hole <coughs> through that trilogy, to be honest. Mm. Um, but the series 10 ends really, really strongly. I know I had my issues with the last episode, but you can't deny it's a, got a lot of very strong stuff Fantastic. in it. And the penultimate episode is one of the most striking, distinct and memorable episodes of the entire 12 years. So I, and as I said about series three, despite human nature and blink and utopia, the thing that sticks in people's minds is the way it ends with, you know, the Dobby Doctor and the Fallen Master. Similarly, in series 10, despite issues earlier in the series and despite the things I've said about Mm. Bill and what have you. The thing that people remember is these two episodes at the end that really killed it. You know, that really, really did a job. Mm. And I think people often, when they think of a series, perhaps will tend to think of the finale first and the rest of it, you know, only by a probably a slight degree, but but I think it's the finale that comes first into your head. There were quite probably a few tens from us, weren't they, in this series? Mm-hmm. Throughout, I think all nines and tens quite highly scored all, all along. But <clears> I think the pyramid episode, which was like a six to eight, wasn't it? Scoring from us. Um, I think we've voted quite strongly for all yeah. three Capaldi series. Really, yeah. I mean, I have because I've really enjoyed them. Yeah, mm. I thought Michelle Gomez was so good in series ten as well. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing about series ten. A lot of people seem to think that Ark, who's in the wardrobe as it were. <laughs> it's in the wardrobe. 
and then you find yeah, out after about four episodes and then you get and uh, that was another issue that some people had but I thought overall they didn't keep the mystery of who was in the wardrobe the vault if you will going for too long so they didn't make a big thing of it and so for general public it only took four weeks to find that out mm. and then you get into the story of will Missy be rehabilitated yeah. and I thought that was a very strong story to tell across mm. that series mm. and I thought <coughs> despite issues that we've pointed out before about how oftentimes that feels shoehorned into episodes in the way um, ongoing American series will have a story of the week with an arc scene at the end that's entirely distinct and Doctor Who doesn't usually make it distinct but it did so in series 10 although I think maybe that was a slight issue with some of the episodes the actual story itself for rehabilitation is probably one of the better arc stories that we've had in the last 10 series so I think that was again something in its favour anybody else then before we wrap on this episode series 10 everybody looks frightened okay let's go it was Essentially, it's a series we never thought we'd have. Well, not that we never thought we have, but might not have been. It was a so, bonus. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's a little yeah. enigma, isn't it? A little yeah. novel series, really. Because we could easily have had a three-year break between the end of Series 9 and the start of Chris Chibnall. So. And there it is at the top. Mm. And as much as we love them, did we really think that the Tenth Planet Cybermen could be quite convincingly creepy in a modern program yes uh, prior to seeing I, this I did yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, often thought <laughs> I always it. found them creepy but yeah. I just wondered how that would translate to a modern yeah. audience and they did such I a good job faith. Mm. as soon as they get it right. as soon as you realised that they were going to be hospital in a hospital mm. that's when you realised that actually it would work yeah. if you remember I said way back probably before the series started if they're going to do Mondas Cybermen they're going to have to address Somehow, the fact that they've got this sort of 50s, 60s look. Mm-hmm. And they did. In a 50s, 60s hospital, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And overall. Well, yeah, we all went on about spare parts for so many years. I think the moth was listening and listened to us. So the, fa- the fans mm, can so thank much, us but... for that, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we're exclusively the only people who <laughs> no. ever mentioned spare parts, Lee. What? Come on. Um, <laughs> next week, unless something else happens in the meantime, we will talk about the top ten classic seasons. Oh, gee. Ooh. Season 17's got to be up there. Yeah. <laughs> what? <clears throat> I said, yeah, the hint which, of sarcasm. Which one's season 17 again? Yeah, see, this is my oh, problem. I, I, we'll swap roles next time. <laughs> I just can't. Look, I know, I know what's in season 17. So the joke's on you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> season 14 to 16 at the top. Until then, I was JR. I was Simon. I was Matt. I was Lee. And I was Mark. And we'll speak again soon. Bye.